Chapter 2, Part 8 of Commentary on the Gospel of John, Book 10, by Cyril of Alexandria. Translated by Reverend Thomas Randall. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter cannot come unto you. Grievous is the sorrow that has consumed your heart, he says, and bitter the affliction that has cast you down, for you consider that separation from me will be fraught with pain to you, and your apprehension is well grounded, for you will certainly have to encounter all the trials which I have already foretold, and will endure the fury of impious persecutions. Considering then that expediency should always be preferred to pleasure, I will tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. And we will make all our thoughts subject to the Saviour who is over us, though I think that the saying may be likely to cause no little perplexity to a simple-minded hearer. For surely the thought will arise in him and occur to his mind that if it was better that Christ should go away, his presence with them could not but infer some loss and if our advantage lay in his ascension, surely the reverse would result from his remaining with us. The question may perhaps perplex an unaided judgment, but the man who is guided by knowledge from above to an accurate comprehension of the saying can find here no occasion of stumbling, but will rather discover its true meaning. We must therefore ponder over and clearly understand this thought in particular, that according to the saying there is a time for everything and all things are good in their season at the fitting season then it was well for christ to be present in this world in the flesh but on the other hand when the time came that was proper and suitable for the complete fulfilment of his purposes he ascended to the father and the charge can in no wise be brought against him that his presence with his disciples was not very advantageous to them, because at the last his departure became necessary. Nor, again, can he be reproached at all because advantage resulted from his departure, inasmuch as his presence was profitable to them. For both these events, coming to pass at the proper season, brought us advantage. And that, briefly touching on the drift of the inquiry, we may make it easier for our brethren to apprehend it. Let us, by way of digression, give an explanation of the cause of the incarnation of the only begotten, and, in addition, of the advantage which would result from his departure. In order, then, that he might free from corruption and death those that lay under the condemnation of that ancient curse, he became man, investing himself, who was by nature the life, with our nature. For thus the power of death was overcome, and the dominion of corruption, which had gained sway over us, was destroyed. And since the divine nature is wholly free from inclination to sin, he exalted us by his own flesh. For in him we all have our being, inasmuch as he manifested himself as man. In order that he might mortify the members which are upon the earth, that is, the affections of the flesh, and might quench the law of sin that holds sway in our members, and also that he might sanctify our nature, and prove himself our pattern and guide in the path to piety. 
and that the revelation of the truth according to knowledge, and of a way of life beyond possibility of error might be complete. All this Christ, when he became man, accomplished. It was necessary then to confer on the nature of man the height of blessedness, and not only to rid it of death and sin, but to raise it even to the heavens themselves, and to make man a companion of the angels, and a partaker in their joys. And just as by his own resurrection he renewed in us the power of escaping corruption, even so he thought it right to open out for us the path heavenwards, and to set in the presence of the Father the race of man who had been cast out of his sight owing to Adam's transgression. And the inspired Paul, adopting this view, says, For Christ entered not into a holy place made with hands, nor into one like in pattern to the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear before the face of God for us. He tells us that being ever in his Father's presence, and partaking of his nature by reason of the sameness of their essence, he now manifests himself not for his own sake, but for us. For I will repeat what I have already said. He places us in the sight of the Father, by departing into heaven as the first fruits of humanity. For just as, being himself the life by nature, he is said to have died and risen again for our sake, even so he is said, ever beholding his Father in being in like manner beholden of him, to appear as man now, that is, when he has taken human nature upon him, not for his own sake, but for us. And as this one thing was seen to be lacking in his dispensation to usward, our ascension into heaven has been prepared for us in Christ, who was the first fruits and the first of men to ascend, for he ascended thither as our forerunner, as the inspired Paul also himself says. There, as man, he is in very truth still the high priest of our souls, our comforter, and the propitiation for our sins. And as God and Lord by nature, he sits on his own Father's throne, and even on us too will the glory thereof be reflected. For this reason also Paul said concerning the Father. And he raised us up with him, and made us to sit with him in the heavenly places in Christ. When, then, his mission on earth was accomplished, it was necessary that he should fulfill what yet remained, his ascension to the Father. Wherefore he says, It is expedient for you that I go away, for if I go not away, the Comforter cannot come unto you. Come, then, let us add yet another reflection, profitable and true, to our previous investigations. All his work on earth had indeed been accomplished, just as we now affirmed. It was, however, surely necessary that we should become partakers and sharers of the divine nature of the word, or rather that, giving up the life that originally belonged to us, we should be transformed into another, and the very elements of our being be changed into newness of life well-pleasing to God. 
but it was impossible to attain this in any other way except by fellowship in and partaking of the holy spirit the most fitting and appropriate time then for the mission and descent of the holy spirit to us was that which in due season came i mean the occasion of our saviour christ departure hence for while yet present in the body with those who believed on him he showed himself i think the bestower of every blessing but when time and necessity demanded his restoration to his father in heaven it was essential that he should associate himself by the spirit with his worshippers and should dwell in our hearts by faith in order that having his presence within us we might cry with boldness abba father and might readily advance in all virtue and might also be found strong and invincible against the wiles of the devil and the assaults of men as possessing the omnipotent spirit for it might easily be shown both from the old and new scriptures that the holy spirit changes the disposition of them in whom he is and in whom he dwells and moulds them into newness of life for the inspired samuel when he was discoursing with saul said and the spirit of the lord will come upon thee and thou shalt be turned into another man and the blessed paul thus writes but we all with unveiled face reflecting as a mirror the glory of the lord are transformed into the same image from glory to glory even as from the lord the spirit now the lord is the spirit you see that the spirit moulds as it were into another likeness those in whom he visibly abides for he easily turns them from an inclination to dwell on the things of earth to the contemplation only of that which is in heaven and from an unmanly cowardice to a courageous disposition and that we shall find the disciples thus affected and steeled by the holy spirit into indifference to the assaults of the persecutors and laying fast hold of the love that is towards christ can no way be questioned therefore the saying of the saviour is true when he says it is expedient for you that i depart into heaven for that was the occasion of the descent of the spirit eight nine ten eleven and he when he is come will convict the world in respect of sin and of righteousness and of judgment of sin because they believe not on me of righteousness because i go to the father and ye behold me no more of judgment because the prince of this world hath been judged when he has shown that his departure to his father is the fitting occasion of the descent and mission of the spirit and has by this means sufficiently allayed the pangs of grief in his holy disciples he rightly proceeds to show what the work of the holy spirit will be for when he is come he says he will convict the world in respect of sin and of righteousness and of judgment and he has clearly pointed out what form the reproof in each of these cases will take but since some are likely to stumble in dealing with this question i consider it necessary to interpret the text point by point and to state more plainly its signification the reproof of sin then has been set first 
how then will he reprove the world? When those who love Christ, as being made worthy of him, and as true believers, are convinced of sin, then it is that he will condemn the world, that is, those who are ignorant and persist in unbelief, and are enslaved by their love of worldly pleasure, by the very nature of their case, in that they are bound by their sins, and doomed to die in their transgressions. For God will in no wise be a respecter of persons, nor will he vouchsafe the Spirit to some in the world without sufficient cause, and to others wholly deny him, but will cause the Comforter to dwell only in those who are worthy of him, who by a pure faith have honored him as truly God, and confess that he is the Creator and Lord of the universe. And that which the Saviour himself by anticipation told the Jews when he said, Except ye believe that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. The Comforter, when he is come, will in fact show to be true. But further, he says, He will reprove the world in respect of righteousness, because I go to the Father, and ye behold me no more. For he will duly hold converse with those who believe in Christ after his ascension into heaven, as duly justified thereby. For they received as the true God him whom, though they had in no wise seen him, they yet believed to sit on his Father's throne. For by calling to mind what Thomas said and did, one might readily perceive that Christ calls those who thus believe blessed. For when he was in doubt about the restoration of the Son to life, he said, Except I shall put my hand into his side, and see the prints of the nails, I will not believe. And when, after Christ had permitted him to do as he desired, he believed, what words did he hear? Because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen, and yet have believed. Justly then have those been justified, who without seeing have believed. But the world has missed the attainment of an equal blessedness, not seeking to obtain the righteousness that is of faith, but deliberately preferring to abide in its own wickedness. It is necessary, however, to know that the two reproofs already mentioned will apply not merely to the Jews, but rather to every man who is stubborn and disobedient. For the appellation, the world, signifies not merely the man who is incessantly engaged in the pursuit of pleasure, and who clings to the wickedness that is of the devil, but signifies equally those who are dispersed about and dwell in the whole world. Thus the double reproof has a generic meaning, and applies to all. For Christ included not merely Judea, as was the case in the beginning, or the seed of Israel only, but the entire race that was descended from Adam. For his grace is not partial, but the benefit of faith is extended to the whole world. The third reproof by the Comforter will be, as the Saviour says, the most righteous condemnation of the prince of this world. And what form this reproof takes I will explain. For the Comforter will testify to the glory of Christ, and, showing that he is truly the Lord of the universe, will reprove the world as having wandered astray, 
and as having left him who is truly God by nature, and fallen down and worshipped him whom nature owns not as God, that is, Satan. For the judgment against him is, I think, sufficient to show that this statement is true. For he could not have been condemned and lost his power, nor have paid the penalty of his conflict with God, being delivered into chains of darkness, if he were by nature God, who sits unshaken on his throne of majesty and power. But now we see him so incapable to preserve his own honor, that he is even cast under the feet of those filled with the Spirit, I mean the faithful who have confessed that Christ is God. For they trample the demon underfoot when he tries and struggles. When, then, any one sees the swarm of impure demons shuddering and cast out by the prayers of such men, and by the working power of the Holy Spirit, will he not with reason say that Satan has been condemned? For he has been condemned by his no longer being able to prevail over those who have been impressed with the seal of righteousness and sanctification by the Holy Spirit, through the faith that is in Christ. How then, tell me, have we trodden all his power underfoot, according to the saying of the Psalms addressed to every man that lives in the world? By the help of the Most High thou shalt tread upon the asp and the basilisk, the lion and the dragon thou shalt trample underfoot. When then the Comforter from heaven enters souls that are pure, and manifest the righteousness of his mission by faith impartially bestowed, then will he show that the world is bound in its own sins, and without share in the grace that is from above, since men repulse their Redeemer. And he will also reprove the world, as causelessly accusing those who have believed, of sin, and as far as they have rightly been justified, although they gaze not on Christ as he departed unto God and wrought marvels, but honor him by faith. It was, I think, with some such thought as this in his mind that Paul said, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that shall condemn? For the mouth of all lawlessness is stopped, according to the word of the psalmist as it can lay nothing to the charge of the faithful elect, who are invested with the glory of the righteousness that proceedeth from faith. He will reprove the world as having gone astray, and resting its hopes on the devil, who has received such condemnation that he has lost all the glory of his former condition, and only deserves our contempt, and to be held of no account by those who worship God. God, then, has called him the prince of this world, not as really being so in truth, or as though this overruling power were a dignity inherent in his being, but as he had the glory thereof by fraud and covetousness, and as he is still holding sway and ruling over those that are astray by reason of the wicked purpose that is in them, by which, having their mind fast bound in error, they are inextricably entangled in the noose of captivity, even though it was in their power to escape by being converted through faith in Christ to a recognition of him who is truly God. Satan, then, is but a pretender to the title of ruler, and has no natural right to it as against God, 
and only maintains it through the abominable wickedness of those who are astray. 12.13. I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he shall guide you into all the truth, for he shall not speak from himself, but what things soever he shall hear, these shall he speak, and he shall declare unto you the things that are to come. He found their sorrow increased by their knowledge of the future, and that they were ill-disposed to bear the coming evils. For sorrow, he says, hath filled your heart. And he thought that it would not be meet to dispirit them by adding the rest, but he buries, as it were, in timely silence what he had to say next, as likely to cause them no small alarm, and reserves what remained for them to know, for the revelation through the Spirit, and for the light that was to be given them at a fitting season. And perhaps also, seeing the disciples slow to apprehend the mystery, because they had not yet been illuminated by the Spirit, nor become partakers of the divine nature. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Christ was not yet glorified. As the Holy Evangelist says, he speaks thus, wishing to suggest to them that he would hereafter be able to reveal mysteries exceeding deep in passing man's understanding, while at present he refuses to do this, and with good reason, because he says that they are not yet prepared for it. For when, he says, my Holy Spirit shall transform you, and change the elements of your mind into a willingness and an ability to despise the types of the law, and rather to prefer the beauty of spiritual service, and to honor the reality more than the shadow. Then, he says, you will surely be able readily to understand the things concerning me. For the complete expression of these things will find place in your hearts, when you are well fitted to receive it. One might suppose, then, that our Lord thought he ought thus to address his disciples, for what he once said as by way of illustration is of a piece with, and will fit in with, the meaning we have just given to his words. No man rendeth a piece from a new garment, and putteth it upon an old garment. And again, But neither do men put new wine into old wine-skins, else the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, but new wine must be put into new wine-skins. For the new instruction of the gospel message belongs not to those who are not yet molded by the Spirit into newness of life and knowledge, and they cannot as yet contain the mysteries of the Holy Trinity. The exposition, then, of the deeper mysteries of the faith is suitably reserved for the spiritual renovation that was to proceed from the Spirit when the mind of those who believed on Christ would no longer allow them to remain in the obsolete letter of the law, but rather induce their conversion to new doctrines, and implant in them thoughts enabling them to see a fair vision of the truth. And that before the resurrection of our Saviour Christ from the dead, and before partaking of his Spirit, the disciples were living too much after the manner of the Jews, and were clinging to the legal dispensation, even though the mystery of Christ was clearly superior to it, one might very readily perceive. 
and therefore the blessed peter even though he was preeminent among the holy disciples when the saviour was once setting forth his suffering on the cross and telling them that he must be outraged by the insults of the jews rebuked him saying be it far from thee lord this shall never be unto thee and yet the holy prophets had plainly declared not only that he would suffer but also the nature and extent of what he would endure and let us also examine this further consideration for when as is recorded and as we read in the acts of the apostles peter was hungry and desired to eat and when he saw thereupon the sheet let down by four corners from heaven in which were included all creatures of the earth and the sea and the air and heard a voice from heaven saying rise peter kill and eat he answered not so lord for i have never eaten anything that is common or unclean and for this received a well-merited rebuke in the answer what god hath cleansed make not thou common and yet he ought to have remembered the frequent statement of our saviour to the jews not that which entereth into the mouth defileth the man see then what need there was in his case for the illumination of the spirit do you perceive then that it was necessary that his temper of mind should be forged anew into another better and wiser than that which was in the jews and therefore when by being enriched with the grace that is from above and from heaven they had their strength renewed according to the scripture and had attained to a better knowledge than before then we hear them boldly saying but we have the mind of christ by the mind of christ they mean nothing else but the advent of the holy spirit into their hearts revealing unto them in due measure all things whatsoever they ought to know and learn when then he that is the comforter the spirit of truth is come he shall guide you into all the truth see how free from extravagance the expression is note the soberness of the phrase for having told them that the comforter would come unto them he called him the spirit of truth that is his own spirit for he is the truth for that his disciples might know that he does not promise them the visitation of a foreign and strange power but rather that he will vouchsafe unto them his presence in another form he calls the comforter the spirit of truth that is his own spirit for the holy spirit is not in truth alien from the substance of the only begotten but proceeds naturally from it having no separate existence from him so far as identity of nature is concerned even though he may be in some sort conceived of as having a separate existence the spirit of truth then he says will lead you to complete knowledge of the truth for as having perfect knowledge of the truth of which he is also the spirit he will make no partial revelation of it to those who worship him but will rather engraft in their hearts the mystery concerning it in its entirety for even if now we know in part as paul says still though our knowledge be limited the fair vision of the truth has gleamed upon us entire and undefiled as then no man knoweth the things of a man 
according to the scripture, save the spirit of the man which is in him. In the same way, I think, to use the words of Paul, none knoweth the things of God save the spirit of God which is in him. When then he cometh, he says, he shall not speak from himself. He does not say, he will make you wise and will reveal to you the mystery of the truth. He will tell you nothing that is not in accord with my teaching, nor will he expound to you any strange doctrine, for he will not introduce laws peculiar to himself. But since he is my spirit, and as it were my mind, he will surely speak to you of the things concerning me. And this the Saviour saith, not that we should suppose that the Holy Spirit has merely ministerial functions, as some ignorantly maintain, but rather from a wish to satisfy the disciples that his Spirit, not being separate from him so far as identity of substance is concerned, will surely speak the things concerning him, and will work and purpose the same. And for this reason he added the words, and he will show you things to come. And it is almost as though he said these very words. This will be a sign unto you that the Spirit is in very truth of my substance, and as it were my mind. His telling you things to come as I have done. For I foretold, even though you have not been able to take everything to heart. He would not then foretell things to come, as I have done, if he did not indeed exist in me and proceed through me, and if he were not consubstantial with me. End of the Tenth Book End of Chapter 2 End of Commentary in the Gospel of John, Book 10, by Cyril of Alexandria Translated by Rev. Thomas Randall